Hey everyone, it's Reed. Before we get started, I want to ask a favor. If you like this podcast, if you listen to the Lincoln Project podcast, share it with a friend, share it with a family member, share it with someone who thinks that the pro-democracy movement in this country is strong, but it must be stronger. Download it, rate it five stars, share it with your friends. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm excited to be joined by Hugo Lowell, political enterprise reporter for The Guardian, covering Trump and the Justice Department. He also regularly appears as a political analyst for MSNBC, Peacock, and a variety of other outlets. Today, he's coming to us in studio from Washington, D.C. Hugo, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me back. All right, so Hugo, you have, I think, the most interesting beat in Washington, which is you get to Dear as I can tell, go where you want to go, talk to who you want to talk to, report on what you want to report about, and you seem to be exceptionally well-sourced. And so now here we are, let's say a week or so after Donald Trump announces his re-election campaign, two weeks after an underwhelming midterm result for Republicans, they still took the United States House of Representatives, even if narrowly. So from where you are, on the ground with your ear as close to what's going on inside the Republican Party right now. What is going on inside that nest of vipers? I think for the kind of House Republican conference, they're in a really difficult position, you know, because there's a lot of factionalism. And there's no doubt about it, right? You have McCarthy, who is trying to cobble together this conference that includes, you know, the Freedom Caucus, people like Matt Gates who don't want to see him as speaker, people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who, you know, might be prepared to see him as speaker if they can extract concessions. And then you also have like moderate, more vulnerable Republicans who are like, you know, why are we investigating Hunter Biden? You know, this is not what we campaigned on and I'm going to get killed in 2024 if this is all we do for two years. And I think, you know, McCarthy has a really difficult job of trying to please everyone. And of course, as, as we both know, when you try and please everyone, more often than not, you please no one. And so maybe this is going to be a very short tenure as speaker before uh, someone else comes along the line. I had read somewhere previously that the likes of the Freedom Caucus, Jim Jordan, those types were going to, to your point about extraction. And I think that there will be very little left of Kevin McCarthy when they're done with him is things like a motion to vacate, right? Which is basically they can fire the speaker whenever they feel like it. Do you think that's the kind of thing that that's sort of Damocles the McCarthy will have hanging over his head as he sits in the speaker's chair if he gets there? Yeah. And look, it depends kind of what he, you know, what paths he gives up, what they put in the House rules package. Marjorie Taylor Greene and Freedom Caucus members have been very, very good at inserting themselves into kind of procedural hijinks in order to screw up passage of votes or passage of legislation in the House. And a motion to vacate, in addition to like the motion to adjourn, motion to kind of dismiss, kind of adds an extra element of that. And I think it is precarious for McCarthy. This is something he really does not want to have to give up. But he's going to have to weigh that against, are they going to fall in line for kind of major votes? And maybe I give them this concession. It's a real trade-off. And I think your description of the sort of Damocles is really on point, because if he does give up that as a concession to the Freedom Caucus, that is going to be hanging over him. And he knows that that is something that they can pull at any time. And the kind of House Republican conference is notorious at trying to oust their speakers. Sure. I mean, they did it to John Boehner back, it was that 2015. Paul Ryan was a compromise candidate 
in the wake of that, I guess, right? And he wanted, I guess, out as quickly as he could get, right? He's gone. And so now, you know, McCarthy wanted the job years ago, didn't get it, but here he is now on the precipice of having a gavel that looks more like a wet spaghetti noodle, right, than a hammer. Do you think knowing that, that he'll be anything other than sort of the fundraiser in chief and a figurehead? I think it's too early to say. I mean, and don't get me wrong, you know, being the fundraiser in chief isn't necessarily a, a bad thing. You know, it's really important, right? Especially in kind of congressional politics these days. And one of the big things that Pelosi was for the House Democratic Conference was she could raise significant funds. I don't think McCarthy has the same level of pull that Pelosi did for Democrats. But, I, you know, th- that is an important consideration. And I think that's something that is going to weigh on McCarthy. And I think worse for him is that the Freedom Caucus knows this and they know they can turn him into kind of a lame speaker if he does get elevated to that position. And they know full well that the power and the center of gravity in this conference is shifting away from him. You mentioned Hunter Biden. Marjorie Taylor Greene has said on several occasions, both on stage with Trump and then separately, not one more dollar for Ukraine, that things like a debt ceiling, if that doesn't get taken care of, you know, in let's say the next month, what they would call a lame duck session, would be held out as a sledgehammer for spending cuts on things like entitlements, Social Security, Medicare, whatever other spending is already in the budget for this year and going forward. These do not seem, Hugo, to be particularly popular things, broadly speaking, with the American people. Yeah. And, you know, Geraldo kind of tweeted something similar the other day about how, you know, Republicans made the midterms and they're kind of messaging all about, you know, crime and inflation. And then now that they get the majority, they don't actually focus on any of those purported things that they claim were on their minds. You know, really, it's become quite evident that they're on a vindictive streak to go after Hunter Biden, you know, the president's family and kind of a number of other investigations that are decidedly political in nature. And they are unpopular. And I think kind of Republicans know this. And there's been a quiet unease, certainly among the freshman members in this Congress, as well as kind of House Republicans who only narrowly won their seats, that this is really not what they want to be focusing on for the next two years once the next Congress comes in 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 January. You know, they really do want to focus on legislative things. They don't want to go back to their constituents in 24 and be like, look, all we managed to do was investigate Hunter Biden. And, you know, potentially the results are not going to be great. Like, you know, if you think back to when they last did this with Benghazi, I mean, yeah, they managed to hit Clinton with it because they turned it into a Clinton emails investigation. But the actual kind of Benghazi investigation went nowhere. And I think there's a real fear that if they go down these political investigation routes, nothing will turn up. You know, you talk about Benghazi, which was a years long deal. You think about repeal and replace of Obamacare, which never got done in the last, let's say, decade, which is further than I can remember. Have Republicans gotten anything, any legislative accomplishment done on their own, where they weren't the ones providing votes for Democrats to get legislative priorities that were done largely for the American people. And lastly, that had any positive or forward outlook for the American people writ large that weren't sort of rooted in the uber revanchism that sort of I think Trump brought out of the ecosystem, but is now seems to be the have the momentum as far as the politics of the Republican Party are concerned. I think it's a really interesting question. Look, you know, Senate Republicans very famously have not advanced any sort of legislative agenda. In fact, when this came up on the table in advance of the midterms, and, you know, McConnell was like, you know, why are we suggesting, you know, to Rick Scott and others, you know, why are you suggesting like an agenda? This is not what we do. And if you think about a lot of the Republican talking points going into the midterms, and even now, if you look at the kind of potential presidential candidates 
RJC and other events, you know, they all talk about, you know, limited government and, you know, we should reduce taxation. And they're all kind of the same talking points that they've been hitting for the last 40 years. Like nothing has changed. And the major thing that the GOP writ large is going to have to grapple with is they haven't got any new ideas for government. And I think this is one thing that political strategists who work with the Republican body now are aware of very acutely. And most interestingly, the people who are most aware of it is Trump world and people advising the Trump campaign and saying, look, this is a way for you to get ahead of the Republican Party and to remake it in your image. Well, I would posit that he has largely remade it in his image. The majority of the Republican House conference is probably more Trumpy and MAGA in nature than it was previously. Do they have enough members that they have the sway of the conference? I think so. I think, look, I think that there are two points here. When Trump is being told by advisors to kind of, you know, remake the Republican Party going forward, it's really with respect to, you know, 24 and like, you know, him putting his own agenda out there. I think it's a separate point with respect to the House Republican Conference. You know, the Freedom Caucus has been around for a while. This is not something that just popped up. And, you know, you've had Tea Party politics for a while. And so I think there's always been an extremist element in the House of Common Conference. I think it's also true, though, to your point, that a lot of people in that caucus and kind of the, the members hew closely to Trump. You know, Stefanik, for instance, is still a big supporter of Trump. You know, Perry, big supporter of Trump. Gates, big supporter of Trump. And so you have this group in the House who are very supportive of him and will do as he wants them to do. And I think that is you know, definitely significant. I remember when I was a Republican, there was sort of three legs of the stool. Limited government, which didn't mean no government. It meant government shouldn't do the things it shouldn't do. Fiscal responsibility, which I guess was part of that. The, you know, sort of individual liberty piece, which was also sort of wrapped into the social conservative, right, sort of religious freedom. And then, you know, a muscular and moral foreign policy. Now the foreign policy is basically no foreign policy. It's almost amoral. It's not immoral. It's amoral. The individual liberty thing applies only to the people in charge who believe it should apply to them and to no one else. And the limited government thing has been, let's cut taxes, let's cut taxes, let's cut taxes. But at the end of the day, you know, I really want to spend money on my dad's credit card because I don't want to make anybody unhappy cutting services. So the ideology is, in my mind anyway, broadly, what Trump is, whether it's, I think it's more instinctual than intellectual, which is white Christian nationalism mixed with this sort of shrink the size of government till you can drown it in a bathtub, except for those things that we like, which is really a lot of stuff because Americans like stuff. They just don't necessarily want to pay for it. It's nihilistic. It's schizophrenic. I mean, there's got to be a word for it. Maybe, Hugo, they have it in German. I don't know that we've invented it here yet. Right. But like, how do all these things live together? Because the one thing I think I believe is that they don't really exist in the real world. Yeah. And I think the trouble is it's difficult to have all three of those things at the same time and have a kind of cohesive party at the same time that's electable. And I think that is part of the issue that they had in the midterms and, you know, will be an issue going forward. I think, you know, the constant chatter about limited government and, you know, cutting taxes you know, that was on display at RJC. I don't know if, how much you, you caught of it, but every establishment conservative candidate that wasn't, you know, totally MAGA was talking about this. And I think people around Trump see this as a real weakness for the Republican Party and for all of these other potential candidates. And Trump just wants to talk about himself. He wants to talk about kind of, you know, grievances and points of animus. And that seems to have a lot more sway with the Republican base today than 
those other candidates. So if you're looking for an alternative to Trump or trying to, you know, trying to become the alternative to Trump, it's not clear that those three kind of pillars of conservatism, kind of as you described it, is valid anymore. So let's talk about this. So the RJC is the Republican Jewish Coalition. They had a big confab. And you saw the likes of Chris Christie, Nikki Haley, Sununu from New Hampshire going up there and sounding Hugo awful tough in the face of Donald Trump and how the country needs to move on. I've never lost a race. I'm not going to lose now, which all sounds surprisingly like they've all forgotten what the world has been like since 2015. They didn't know they were making this mistake when Trump first came down the escalator, but they know it now. Right. Which is, okay. well, we probably can't beat him if it's a big crowd of us, but I'll be damned if I'm going to get behind any of these other people. It's sort of the anti-democratic party, what they did when they coalesced behind Joe Biden in 2020, which is the only people they hate more than us is the each other. And they're perfectly willing to put the country on hold for their own ambition. But the truth is, is that their own ambition will not only cost the country, it'll probably cost them because not one of these people has proven they can take on Trump either as a group or individually. And when they've previously tried to take him on as a group, they've effectively split the anti-Trump vote and, you know, Trump sails through. And, you know, it's so interesting that you talk about 2015 because that's exactly how the Trump campaign sees it. They watched RJC and they're like, look, this is a repeat of 2015. We just have to follow the 2015 playbook and we win. Like the Trump campaign guys are looking at this and saying, you know, fine, he might be kind of unfavorable, unpopular in general. But as long as we have a floor of about 30 percent, then that's all we need to get through kind of the Republican nomination process and for Trump to become the nominee. That's all we need so long as he hits that 30% threshold. And so I think they're looking at a lot of these candidates kind of all vying, you know, and kind of you know, hitting each other, you know, trying to become the anti-Trump alternative and thinking, you know, this is only beneficial for us. Well, and, you know, I'd be interested to hear what you're hearing because the likes of Mike Pompeo, or Nikki Haley worked for Trump. Remember back in 2018 that Ron DeSantis couldn't have stuck his nose further up Trump's you-know-what in his campaign there to get elected governor of Florida the first time. Chris Christie, well-known supplicant to Donald Trump, damn near got killed because Trump had COVID and didn't tell anybody. And the rest of these guys have sort of, you know, done the see-no-evil, hear-no-evil, speak-no-evil routine while he's running around. And then you go back to DeSantis, Yunkin, a lot of these people, too, who are skating by, you know, Trump's getting all this blame for losing in 2022. Okay, but you guys all endorsed the Kerry Lakes of the world. You all campaigned for the Kerry Lakes of the world and the Adam Laxalts of the world, and you're all going to go to Georgia. Brian Kemp, Hugo, is campaigning on behalf of Herschel Walker, right? So it seems to me that they have a lack of imagination and are in a significant state of denial, each and every one of them. If you talk to the Trump advisors now, they're like, the only way that Yunkin or these other kind of guys can knock Trump is if they do it now and they knock him down effectively, right? Like if you're going to kind of try and decapitate the king, you have to do it in one go. You can't swing a miss. And based on the performances of kind of their speeches recently about, you know, how they might consider running against Trump, the Trump campaign guys are not worried clearly by any of these guys at all. And there is certainly a sense of, you know, these guys will fall back in line once Trump kind of shows that he is the front runner. And for all intents and purposes, he is the front runner. Like, I don't think there's any way you get around that right now. Like, no one else has declared, you know, even with someone like DeSantis, regardless of whether he is looking at putting together a campaign now, the 
kind of consensus within the RNC and Trump world is they don't think DeSantis actually runs until the end of the Florida legislative session in, in May or June. And by then, the Trump campaign, you know, what they say is Trump would have had six months, seven months to define the campaign on his terms. And that they think would be a fatal blow to DeSantis and DeSantis will just not want to get involved in this at this point. Well, and I'll also tell you again, you know, as someone who spent far more time in places like Iowa than I ever thought I would in South Carolina than I ever thought I would, each one of these people, with the exception of Christie, who guess has already done it, they don't know what it's like to run for president normally in a normal world. We don't live in a normal world anymore, Hugo. We live in a post-Trump world now. We live in a post-COVID world. We live in a post-everything world, right? We are in a new epoch in this country. And the reformation taking place, whether we can see it or not, will be the greatest change in American government, culture, politics, economy, probably since the end of World War II. It'll be that life-changing for all 330 million Americans, not to mention the rest of the 8 billion people on Earth. And so what I think they're going to do is that, look, they're all conventional politicians. They're going to run conventional campaigns. They all have to, to your point about the 30 percent, they can't beat him without some of that 30 percent, which means they're going to have to pander to and play footsie with some very, very bad people. The Camp Auschwitz guy, the QAnon people, the Proud Boys, they're going to need some of these people, which is why I think you saw Yunkin and these guys go out there and do that because they realize I'm going to have to pick up three, four, five, six percent of these people if I want to beat them. But at the end of the day, they still don't know how to beat him because they're conventional. They're going to stand on a stage and they're going to try and insult him. And he's going to laugh. Right. And he's going to be like, that's the best you got, Glenn. Right. Oh, OK, Tater. Right. I mean, he's going to come up. He's going to do the same shtick. And they're not going to know what to do because Trump is his campaign and the campaign is Trump. Right. The whole world is him. Whereas in a normal presidential campaign, you've got the candidate, the spouse, strategy people and donors campaign manager which trump doesn't have actually at the moment right yeah and then you have all these layers of bureaucracy and it all takes time and he's going to go out and say something now it's the response clock what are we going to say how are we going to say it? and before you know it it's a day later and he's already moved on to the next thing or the next four or five things and they just don't get it right they don't get it. And Hugo, I wonder, aside from the Trump world, have you have you seen any recognition by these other proto candidates that they have any understanding of this? I'd say the quick answer is no. But then also, look, no one else has declared yet, right? No one else has actually said we're running against Trump. You know, it's difficult to see how kind of how DeSantis might may or may not rise to the occasion if he decides to run for president. But I think it's true that to beat Trump, you need to be an unconventional candidate in the way that he is. But it can't just be a copy of what Trump is. You can't copy Trump because Trump is Trump and he does it best. Anyone who challenges him is going to have to find a way of being their own person, but also being able to hit Trump. And I think that's a very, very difficult quality to have. And I think people overlook this. You know, people look at the midterms and they go, you know, not all of his endorsed candidates did well. You know, they look at Oz. But there's something to be said that also, you know, these candidates were just not good choices in the first place. And, you know, maybe Trump was misled or kind of for whatever reason, they might have not done well, but they were at fundamentally a bad candidate and people saw them that way. And I'm not necessarily sure that Republican voters see Trump as a bad candidate in the same way they saw Oz as problematic. But the thing about Oz, Lake, Walker, they didn't lose by that much. 
you know, if the wind is blowing a different direction, if the jobs report, you know, right before the election craters, right? These people could be, you know, these people could be governor elect, senator elect. Herschel Walker is a fundamentally flawed and unserious candidate for the United States Senate. And he's going to a runoff against a guy who's put his life, you know, in the service of both God and now his country. And he took him to a runoff. And so, like, that's the other piece of this, too, is like, okay, yeah, he lost. But his people didn't lose by much. Remember, Trump didn't lose by much in 2020. Now, yes, he got beat by seven million popular votes. And if that's how we counted presidential votes, that would be a big deal. But he didn't lose by much in Georgia or Pennsylvania or Michigan or Wisconsin. These were close races. And this goes back to this idea, Hugo, whether or not it's these potential candidates, their advisors, the big donor set of Ken Griffins and Steve Schwartzman's or the media is they don't seem to understand that this is a not just a strain of the Republican Party, but to me, the main artery of the Republican Party. It is the blood source and the lifeblood of what goes on in Republican politics. And when you have someone like Carrie Lake, who's still out there today saying, I didn't lose, I don't understand how Chris Christie can go, oh, yeah, it's good. We'll figure it out. Right. I just don't get it. And to your point, I mean, I might as well just add here that, you know, people make a lot of hay about kind of how Trump lost in 2020, but Tony Fabrizio, who does his polling now, put together the after action report. And that report basically said, look, Trump botched COVID. And if it hadn't been for COVID, he would have probably won. And so if you take that out of the equation, you know, Again, the, the people are like, you know, he lost in the midterms. You know, that the Democrats did really well in the midterms. That was a repudiation. Yeah, okay, but that's always been kind of historical trends. Again, you know, 2022, this midterms, again, a little bit different. But in terms of presidential cycles, I did think it was interesting that if you take away the COVID element in that election, Trump may well have won. And so I think there is less of a repudiation of kind of Trump and his politics than I think a lot of these guys like, you know, Sununu or kind of Christie realize or care to admit. And I think that's a very fundamental problem for them going into a potential 24 run. Yeah, I mean, think back to 2020 just for a second, Hugo. Remember that it is unusual in an American presidential history for incumbent presidents to lose, right? That is the exception. That's the aberration. One-term presidents, we don't do that very often. We had Trump. The last time was 30 years prior to that with George H.W. Bush. The last time prior to that was 12 years before that. So the idea of that sort of but for COVID, I think you're probably right. I think he probably does win. But now let me ask you this, because we hear there are rumblings at the RNC where Ronna McDaniel is going to run for chair again, that maybe there's some competition for her out there. But this is where I want to flip another page on the Trump versus Republican Party thing, which is without Trump's name on an email, Hugo, I wonder how much money the Republican National Committee raises. How much money does the National Republican Congressional Committee raise? How much money, small dollar money, I should say, does the National Republican Senatorial Committee raise? I don't think it's zero, but he is certainly the main driver of small dollar fundraising for the party apparatus. And if he were to be beaten, he could just say, I'm out. Don't call. Don't write. And not only that, I'm going to tell all my people, stay home. They cheated me out of it. They're all crooks. I'd rather have Joe Biden president for a thousand years than any of these people ever see the Oval Office. And there is a really big element to this because Trump's ability to turn out small dollar donors is just extraordinary. I mean, 
I was at Mar-a-Lago two Tuesdays in a row, which is more times being at Mar-a-Lago <laughs> than anyone should be in a two-week period. But after the announcement, and then secondly, also with the special counsel announcement by the Justice Department, in the one-hour period after he launched his campaign, Trump raised something close to a million dollars in small-dollar donors in the first hour. And I think it really underscores the extent to which you know people want to donate to him. And that just doesn't exist with the NRSC or kind of, you know, leadership packs in the House and Senate or kind of gubernatorial races. Trump does have an extraordinary ability to pull in donors. And the RNC and the GOP writ large know this. And that's why you have all these kind of when they send out fundraising emails, puts Trump in the in the headline and put Trump in the banner image, because that is really the main driver of campaign contributions. And when you have, you know, it's not like if you had Rick Scott's face on the top of a of a campaign email, people would start donating money. So I think that is a very important consideration. And if you had Mitch McConnell's face on there, they'd throw their computer out the window, <laughs> right? <clears throat> but this brings up another great point about sort of the mechanics of a presidential campaign. I have been on some of the best and I have been on some of the worst. And, you know, there's this desire to build, right? Presidential campaigns have this natural desire to be big, to be able to do all things at all times. Got to have 30 people, the best people in Iowa, the best people in New Hampshire, this, 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 this. And before you know it, you know, you're burning two and a half, three million bucks a year, a month, excuse me, nine, 12 months out from the first contest. And Hugo, as you know, once that cash register starts rolling, it doesn't stop. Remember 2015 when Jeb Bush raised $100 million into a super PAC before his campaign? And, you know, by South Carolina, he's bowing out. And I was there that night in that room. And you could tell, like, it just like people couldn't believe it. And then you also take in the optics of a presidential campaign. Anywhere Trump goes, thousands of people are going to show up. Thousands of people are going to show up. The show comes to town, the guys with the trucks and the flags and the T-shirts and the music and everything else. The rest of these people will be at VFW halls hoping to get 25, 30 people to show up, right? So even the scale by comparison will make the rest of them look small. I mean, when Ron DeSantis has to do his first event, a town hall meeting in Ottumwa, and his campaign worked for 10 days to get 100 people out, it's going to be, by definition, underwhelming. I think this kind of actually bring something up that I should probably mention before, which is if Trump is running against all these other guys, people are going to donate to Trump. But it's not like right now where they would donate to the GOP or to kind of, you know, other like the NRSC, right? It is a zero sum game because if you donate to Trump, you're not going to donate to other candidates. If you're a supporter of Trump, you're going to support Trump. You're not going to support like DeSantis. And so there is going to be a real redirect of that money, which is interesting because Trump is probably the one candidate who doesn't need the money. What's, what's he going to spend it on? TV ads? <laughs> right. This guy doesn't need TV ads. There is such an obsession and fixation with Trump that he gets a lot of this free advertising already. And even if it's negative advertising, you know, even if it's negative coverage in general, like Trump's name is going to be in the news all the time, especially, you know, because he's now the subject of two criminal investigations. And so that also takes away kind of momentum from the other candidates. And I think the Trump campaign guys are looking at this and thinking, actually, you know what? The situation right now we're in is looking pretty favorable to us. So how do you see this playing out? So we're now we're going to have this weird interregnum, right, which is only Trump could announce as soon after, you know, Election Day as he did. Others, John McCain, notably in 2006, announced an exploratory committee very shortly after Election Day. But for the most part, you know, people feel like, OK, we've got to get going soon. 
right? A lot of these things start up in the January of the off year. You've got a year to build your team. You've got a year to make your case. And then Iowa rolls around. But to your point, Trump needs an airplane and hangar or some open field and, you know, a couple of cars to get him around, which are provided by the federal government. So, you know, right after Election Day, Hugo, there was this buzz for DeSantis. Now it almost seems it's this fever pitch for these people from the big donor set and from the establishment. Get the hell in. Get in. You got to get in now. What's the timeline as far as you can see where these people, somebody will actually jump? I mean, I could see Pence going early. You know, he's a one trick pony. He's going to be the evangelical guy. He won't even say he's mad at Trump for trying to kill him. So, like, how do you see the timing working out here? I think the donors are right. I think if you're going to jump in a race against Trump, you need to do it now. I'm hearing various things with DeSantis. It's not clear if he, you know, sets up an exploratory committee now to kind of, you know, see whether there's a way for him to run against Trump at the moment. But certainly, you know, like I said, the consensus in Trump world, at least, and kind of people in Tallahassee is DeSantis waits until the end of the legislative session. We could be six, seven months away. It's not clear about the other candidates. I think, you know, it, is Rubio going to run? I mean, what's Sununu going to do? What's Christie going to do? And, you know, I think there was a lot of discussion about whether Trump announcing right after the midterms was too early. But, you know, Obama, you know, announced soon after the midterms when he ran for president um, initially. So I don't think that's necessarily an issue. But the other thing about the donors that's really interesting is the more that these candidates listen to donors because they're funding their campaigns, it also gives Trump an opening to hit them by saying, look, oh, you know, you guys are being funded by corporate interests. You guys are being funded by, you know, big tech, you know, Washington guys, Washington money. And if you think back to 2015, 2016, you know, the one thing that Trump really did effectively run on was, and as it turned out, was kind of a lie about how he was all self-made. You know, he was like, you know, out of the deal, like I like I'm not beholden to corporate interests. And this is why, like, I'm a unique candidate. I'm the real people's president. Right. And so the moment DeSantis starts, you know, taking on big dollar donors, like something like Citadel, like, you know, hedge funds, like people like Paul Singer, it does play into Donald Trump's hands. And Trump knows this. And I feel like Trump, if you talk to the advisors, if you talk to the campaign guys, they're like, you know, we're just waiting for DeSantis to start accepting big checks. And then we're going to hammer him. Well, and also, I mean, how many of these, you know, just back to the Republican National Committee and the party, how many of these, you know, state party chairs does he own? How many of these national committee men and committee women does he own? If Ronna McDaniel gets reelected, she's a Trump person. Even if it's not her, the person's going to be Trumpy. So just all of the apparatus of the party and the, and the organizing and the nominating mechanisms belong to him. They don't belong to anybody else. And they make their own rules. And he's replaced a lot of, in these institutions, he's replaced a lot of the people with people who are loyal to him, you know. And, you know, he was trying to do this at a federal level, you know, through Schedule F appointments, you know, trying to purge the career officials and replace them with kind of loyalists. But he's also done that at a grassroots level, all the way down through people like Steve Bannon. Bannon's obsessed with precinct watchmen, right? He's obsessed with having local infrastructure that's very MAGA. And Trump has been very good at getting that infrastructure in place, you know, with an eye on a long-term kind of resetting of how the GOP operates. And he's been very effective at that, and he's done that very quietly. And I don't think anyone has really paid that much attention to it until we get to about now, when you know we all see the writing on the wall and how you know whether it's Ronald McDaniel or someone else, the GOP party really has become Trumpy in many respects. All right. So as we wrap up here, Hugo, what else are we missing out there? What else are you looking at? I mean, the midterms only just finished, but you know I think it's prudent to look at twenty-four and kind of some of the other concerns that are kind of permeating around. One of the concerns is what the Justice Department does. 
And I do wonder if there is an element of DeSantis waiting to see, you know, how does DOJ move against Trump? Because one thing that would be very convenient for people who want to be the anti-Trump candidate, if DOJ moves forward with an indictment against Trump, I think the very fact that he gets indicted is bad for him. I think, you know, Trump world likes to spin it as, you know, this would be great for him because, you know, he could fundraise. But I think also, you know, Americans aren't fundamentally stupid. And I don't think they like the idea of, you know, endorsing someone for president if they've actually been indicted and an indictment has been returned by a grand jury. I think that's a different level. Like, it's one thing to have a congressional investigation or one thing to have an impeachment. You know, the moment you get indicted by a grand jury, that starts to be kind of problematic. And then if he's convicted, I think that really is it. So I think the DOJ investigations are going to be very, very important in this race. Less so the January 6th investigations, because I think they're more murky and, you know, that's less clear cut than, say, the Mar-a-Lago documents case. It's abundantly clear he had documents bearing classification markings in his private residence. He didn't comply or appears to have only partially complied with a subpoena. Again, you know, that's very black and white. And this is probably the most straightforward criminal case against him that has kind of ever been kind of pursued by the Department of Justice. And I think this is very significant. I've read that some people think that the attorney general's appointment of a special counsel was prudent. Others think it was just a way to not have to deal with an indictment. Where do you see it? I'm not really focused on kind of whether it was prudent or not. I kind of want to see what it means for the investigation. And to me, what it seems like is the Department of Justice is strongly considering a prosecution against Trump. Look. Garland and, you know, the deputy attorney general's office, you know, Lisa Monaco, I don't think would have gone through the motions of appointing a special counsel if they did not see a prosecutable case. If they didn't think they would even, you know, remotely charge Trump, they would have closed this investigation down. They would not have, you know, wasted time and resources finding a special counsel, setting up a special counsel's office if they didn't genuinely think this is something that, you know, this is a prosecution that they would have to deal with. You know, Garland's, you know, explanation for why appointing a special counsel is right, you know, Trump has announced that he's a presidential candidate, but I think people miss this nuance a little bit. It appears to be it's because Garland thinks Trump may be prosecuted while running for president that he's appointed special counsel. He hasn't just done it because he's announced he's running for president. If I were announced running for president and I committed crimes, there's a nuance with Trump that I think people miss sometimes. And it's because it appears to be that the Department of Justice has decided there is a prosecutable case against him. Right. You know, and I think it's one of those things, I think we see it in the crop of potential presidential candidates. I do hope that the Justice Department indicts him. People are going to be worse. Look, the fastest way to ensure you get what you don't want is do everything in your power to avoid it, and it will find you. And that has been the story of our time in the last seven, almost eight years. When you avoid dealing with the worst thing, and in this political case, the worst thing is Donald Trump, you're going to get what you don't want because you can't control him. You can't tell him what to do. I think it was a smart move to not have a campaign manager because he's so stuck on that position, that role. And that's the other thing, too, like Susie Wiles, Chris Lasavito, like these are smart people, right? These are really good political people. We would have thought by now he would not have found any normal human being to want to run a political operation of his, but he found him, right? And I mean, remember, Lasavito was the swift boat guy. He just got done winning Ron Johnson's race. Like this is a guy who knows what he's doing. You know, he is a political knife fighter. He is very, very good at what he does. And it just goes to show you that if you are the front runner in a presidential campaign, someone will come work for you. Same with Tony Fabrizio. I mean, you know, again, veteran pollster, right? I mean, if I was running a campaign, I wouldn't want, you know, Tony Fabrizio running polls against me. 
I mean, the comms side, I mean, Trump does a very good job by himself of kind of managing comms. But, you know, again, very, very slick. Brian Jack is back. You know, there are a lot of people who are very capable political operatives. And from what I understand, Susie is going to be running the day-to-day kind of operation. And Chris and Brian, they'll be like political consultants. They'll be like a political director role. But those two forces combined, plus someone like Tony Fabrizio, by all accounts, on both sides of the aisle, is a killer team. And as always, you should not underestimate any of this stuff. I remember 2015. I remember 2016. What a joke the guy was. He won the nomination. Can you believe it? Don't worry. Hillary's going to clean his clock. He won. As you said, Hugo, he would have won in 2020, but for COVID, right? Literally, it took a pandemic of global proportions to make sure he didn't get reelected to the White House. All right. Before we let you go, Hugo, where can our listeners find you online and read your work? Well, I'm on Twitter way too much at uh, Hugo. <laughs> For now? <laughs> For now. Let's see how that develops. But I'm uh, also trying to up my Instagram game. I'm at Hugo X Lowell. The uh, Hugo Lowell username was taken, so I had to you know, improvise a little bit. But also, you know, I write for The Guardian on MSNBC when we have uh, good stories. And as always, gang, you can find me on Twitter and TikTok at Reed Galen and on Instagram myself at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. Hugo Lowell, thanks for joining me. Thanks so much. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. If you want to message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at lincolnproject.us. And if you want to personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy, visit jointheunion.us. Also, be sure to check out our growing LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 7 p.m. Eastern, we're speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern, and Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Monday at noon Eastern. Plus, we'd love you to check out our newest show, The Game We're In, with Maya May and Trigby Olson, which airs Mondays at 7 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on The Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, or Twitter feeds. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. I'll see you on the next episode. Thank you.